It's episode number 30 of Presentable, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. This week on the show, we talk to Laura Kalbag about her new book, Accessibility for Everyone. We discuss how digital products have an increasing mandate to be broadly usable by everyone in society, and what we can do to achieve better accessibility in our designs. So let's get right to it. Hey, thanks for um, being on the show. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I want to talk about uh, this book you've written about accessibility. This is something I've been thinking about for a long time in my career, so I'm glad to have like a fresh look at it. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to mention a couple things, kind of kind of meta about the podcast, which I don't do very often. I don't talk about the the podcast itself on the podcast, but um, I wanted just to kind of let everybody know that. Presentable, the podcast, is part of a larger network. It's called Relay FM. Have you, Laura, uh, listened to any of the other Relay FM podcasts? I'm afraid I haven't, and I'm a big podcast listener, so I Are should you? get on that, yeah. Yeah, you should. There's a ton of them um, by very kind of like-minded individuals, people, and most of them about technology. Um, there's a few on like following Apple. There's there's one on Android and, and material design, which I think is particularly good. Uh, there's a couple other that are just out there, like weird Wikipedia pages, a whole podcast on that, and uh, collecting pens, stuff like that. Um, they're all on the website. And every year, Relay FM does this sort of member drive where you can sign up for a membership. And if you do that, you get sort of special perks. Well, you get to support kind of all the podcast, the network, and all the all the various uh, people that are putting their time into making these podcasts. But you, you get to hear uh, the new podcasts that that, that uh, the new shows that they are developing. Uh, you get to hear those first. There's a monthly newsletter with behind the scenes look at all the shows. There's these beautiful high res desktop images, and there's a members only podcast. And next week. I'm doing a special episode of Presentable where I interview the Relay FM founder, Stephen Hackett, about the redesign that they did of their brand and their website. Um, and it's good stuff. And the only way to hear it is by becoming a member. So it's only, there's a bunch of levels of membership. You can start at uh, as little as $5 a month. Uh, so you can skip your fancy coffee once in a while and, and become a member. So um, Relay FM, that's, that's that. Uh, you are up in Sweden? Yes, I am. What yeah. are you doing in Sweden? You don't you don't have a Swedish accent. <laughs> no, I'm British. Okay. Uh, we moved here about eighteen months ago, um, looking for a change of scene. Um, spent had I'd spent all my life up until that point in the UK, mm. and uh, thought all the while we have uh, I have European citizenship. I could try having a look at somewhere else. And yeah, yeah, you thought that eighteen months ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, my my partner had spoken at a conference in Malmo here and said, this place is amazing. We should see if we want to live in Sweden. And we came out here and it's Malmo's a really lovely city. It's in South Sweden, so mm -hmm. it's quite warm uh, compared to the rest of Sweden. <laughs> in uh, context. It's, well, it's not as rainy as the UK by a long way. So oh. that's quite a nice draw. But it's still good climate. I've got a big snow dog. And so it's quite nice for him that... It's not too hot in the summer either. I've never been to Malmo. That's that's over by Copenhagen, sort of, isn't it? Like yeah, exactly. You over, can do over both on that cities side? in what in half a day if you wanted mm. to, because it's only a twenty-minute train between the two. Wow, um, but I have spent. Uh, I've done a couple of trips to Stockholm, and that's a beautiful city as well. I was just 
I was so impressed with like the physical design of that city. I don't know if Malmo's the same, but Stockholm was just like somebody had written a perfect style guide for a city and just applied it. And, and, and yet at the same time, so there was this sort of rigidity and, and gorgeousness to the whole city, but it's still very human to it as well. And I mean like the, the post boxes and the bus shelters and like <laughs> everything was just so beautiful. They do design very well here. Um, it's I, it's I, not it's, a stereotype. It's a Canadian like it's, thing. Um, yeah. And I think even here it, in Malmö, it's a old industrial area. It used to be a lot of shipbuilding and things like that. So we still have these huge industrial factories and um, warehouses and things like that. And a lot of them are now being converted now that the shipbuilding industry here is no longer in existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it means that there are lots. Of, there's a lot of new housing and things like that, and it's really interesting to see the design considerations that they put into it. It's yeah. not the same as what it would be like in the UK at all. No, yeah, yeah. There is a like I was, I was having dinner with a designer in Stockholm, and she was telling me that there is this sort of a different sort of like cultural collectivism around that sort of stuff. That's very different than certainly in America, you know, where I come from, which is very much focused on individualism where um, people are more apt to have a bigger sense of the value for the community for things like design than for the needs of the individual. Yeah. I mean, politically they're somewhat oriented around that. And, but culturally we often say it's, it's quite conformity is, is really what um, you notice about mm. the Swedish culture. Um, people have very specific norms and they're quite noticeable and people stick to them. Uh, even down to fashion, people are very stylish here, um, but they do tend to dress quite sim- similarly. Everyone looks wonderful, but they do look the same. <laughs> And we have seen that in the sort of investing work I do because we've been um, doing more and more talking to more startups in Scandinavia. We've done some in Helsinki and and things like that and and finding the just the difference there in because, you know, that that entrepreneurial spirit that they talk about in Silicon Valley very can be can tend to be very kind of individual and. uh, I've talked to people uh, start uh, founders of startups in Scandinavia where that is a little bit. Uh, more outside of the norm um, and find it a bit struggling, you know, right, with hiring and things like that. So, well, one of the reasons that we did want to um, look at Sweden was also that there is much more of an angle of working for social good. Yeah. And given that we have our work in trying to improve technology for social good, it kind of made sense to try to find communities that would be more welcoming to that approach as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think Silicon Valley could use a healthier dose of that right about now. I think Uh, (laughs) the last year, God, the last six months have just been uh, a little social good. could go a long way. So let's let's talk a little bit about accessibility. I'm going to tell you a story because I was on a I was on a panel at South by Southwest. This is at least at least ten years ago now, maybe even longer. And it was a panel on accessibility. And for whatever reason, with my crazy schedule back then, I had to fly to Austin, Texas, the morning of the panel that was in the afternoon. And it was I had plenty of time. I wasn't worried about it until, of course, we got stuck in Denver or whatever. And um, and I'm watching the minutes tick by and tick by, and I'm like, I'm not going to make the conference. I'm not going to make it. My flight was, you know, three hours late, and I land in Austin, and I have to get to this to the convention center, and I like run through the terminal, get a car, a rented car, and drive ridiculously fast into Austin, and I like get to the convention center. There's no nowhere to park, so I literally 
Um, so it reminds me of like, you, know, you ever seen the movie, the blues brothers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the end where they have to like get the money for the orphanage to the tax assessor or whatever. And they're like, <laughs> driving like crazy up onto the, onto the sidewalk park. I just leave the car there. And I like, I'm running to the, to the conference hall and I see my brother who is also attending the conference and I throw the keys at him and I'm like, go park my car. It's the one on the sidewalk. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> and I, and I'm, I'm got my suitcase and everything and I run into the into the room and they are just finishing the introductions and I'm like I'm here I'm here and literally every head in the room turns to the back where I'm running in and I run in and I get I sit down at the at the panel and I look down and there's a dog at my feet and I realize oh my god the guy next to me that's it's a assistant uh, it's a seeing eye dog uh, and the man next to me um, can't see, and he's uh, an expert on, and he's got a, a Braille uh, keyboard um, input output device right on his on, on the table in front of him, hooked him to a laptop. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And anyway, so um, the first person goes, and they start to and they give their little spiel, and then they they get to me, and the first thing that I say is, I take a deep breath, whew, calm down, and I say, I don't believe in accessibility. And the whole room, the whole room is just like, what is going on? This crazy man comes running in in the beginning of the session and kind of lays that down. And I went on to explain um, this is something I had put in a blog post that if you practice proper web centered design, like web native design, use the technology the way it was intended and designed to be used that you actually like generally create accessible things. Like accessibility is built in in such a way that you don't have to spend so much time making a separate process for accessibility. And that was certainly true, you know, 10, 12 years ago or whatever. Um, I wonder how much of that is the case today. I wonder if, you, if, if that philosophy still kind of holds uh, a decade later. I would say that that philosophy certainly holds. And um, I think one of the easiest things to help make a page more accessible is understanding how to use HTML properly. And yeah. HTML is one of the sort of simplest languages that you could possibly use when you're writing things on the web. It's very straightforward declarative elements and you can just go, this is a heading, this is a paragraph. And you'd be surprised the amount of people that don't do that. Yeah. And certainly when it comes to that, making things like our code accessible, is sort of is very straightforward and is part of just designing inclusively. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I think that that operates from the idea that you are designing in the first place with a very broad, very wide audience in mind. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, when I think most of us start designing sites, designing products and things like that, we tend to be designing for us as an individual or our friends, or some other people that we know. And so we instantly narrow down our, broader, our, our base of who we're designing for. And we don't necessarily think outside of that. I think it's related to diversity as well in that, in the same way that people are like, well, of course, I don't, I don't design things so that they are not inclusive to people of other genders, people of other backgrounds, people of other ethnicities and things like that. But because their default state is designing for themselves, 
they don't tend to think beyond that. There's this this notion I hear all the time, especially in the startup world, of this idea of scratching your own itch as one mm -hmm. of the easiest ways to make a good product because you know the yeah, problem. Yeah, eating your own dog food. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know the problem exists because you have it. And therefore, mm -hmm. you solve the problem in a way that's going if it solves it for you. And you hope then there are as many people like you to build an audience to make a product successful. But that, I think, has led to all the problems we were just talking about in Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. let alone sort of the values that you were just talking about. And in your book, you had this definition of accessibility as the degree to which an environment is usable by as many people as possible. Um, and that's what you're getting at with inclusion and diversity. Yeah, exactly that. It's not, I think when we say accessibility, it's very easy for people to think, oh, that means making a website um, accessible to people who are using a screen reader or using a particular type of assistive technology and that person is also blind. And that tends to be the kind of stereotypes and the boxes that we put people in. Yeah. And I mean, making a website screen reader accessible will make it accessible to a huge amount of people. And it is one of the particular things that if you are trying to check the boxes of, oh, well, this will help make my site more screen read accessible, you will end up making it accessible to people with other needs as well. You make it more accessible to search engines and things like that too. So making a product that accounts for people with an impairment often kind of makes the product more usable for everybody, right? Like in the physical world, the, the curb cuts where the, where the curb dips, dips down at the sidewalk, ostensibly an accessibility implementation for people with wheelchairs, but benefits, you know, people pushing strollers or people on roller skates or skateboards or whatever, yeah, right? Exactly like that's the, that. the bigger picture is it makes it better for everybody by making it better for a few. Yeah, and many of the specific types of um, impairments that we might be trying to aim our sites towards, such as maybe someone can't see a screen, maybe someone finds it difficult to interact using a mouse, have fine motor control, maybe someone can't hear um, what's coming out of their speakers when they're watching a video, um, maybe someone has learning difficulties and finds it quite hard to read sort of very long blocks of text. All of these kinds of considerations, if you're trying to make improvements to make the page accessible for them, you're going to make general usability enhancements that will help everybody and will help anyone who, who whether regardless of whether they have a particular impairment or not, or maybe they are trying to do something else at the same time as using your page. Maybe they're undergoing those same stress cases that in Sarah Watcher-Betcher's book and Eric Meyer's book, Design for Real Life, they mm. talk about when people are really undergoing situations of stress where having a site that is usable and accommodating to that stress will be very beneficial to them. That's a fantastic book, by the way, and I should have uh, them both on the show. But the idea of taking a sick child to the hospital and trying to like use the hospital website as a kind of ac uh, accessibility use case, I think is really, really interesting. Yeah, it's, and it's just thinking about people as they interact with the things that we build in their everyday life. Because now, I mean, we're building products and services that are the new everyday things. The things that we're building have an impact on people's lives because they're interacting with them often more than they're interacting with roads, more than they're interacting at the supermarket, more than they're cooking food on their cookers at home. They're using what we're building. Mm -hmm. And so we have to really be responsible for that and make it inclusive so that people aren't left out if we're building them badly. So there's this, this term that you use that I like a lot, and it feels like a stage of 
kind of becoming aware of accessibility where at first like I'm just designing for myself and it works for me and that's great and people like me like it and that makes me happy. All right, that's stage one. But like stage two is like, oh, I have to account for other people, right? People with other abilities that I don't know about, that I don't quite understand. And you call that colonial design, which I think is a great phrase as this idea yeah. of like, we know everything, but we're going to help you people as well. So as a British person, it's something that <laughs> yeah, I very true. much understand. The whole idea of perhaps going to another country and saying, uh, we think you should do this in our way. And naturally, it will benefit us if you do it in our way. Mm. Um, but this is the right way to do it. And we need to not take on that kind of imperialist nature when we design products for people. Uh, we should... Like we were saying earlier about Sweden, we should um, try to think about more in terms of what we're building for the good of everybody, for the good of the whole. Mm. And so in doing so, we can start thinking about things like accessibility and things like that. Not by saying, oh, you are, you're blind and uh, you use a screen reader. What I'm going to do is I think you'll find it really useful if I add all these little instructions in invisible text on the page just for you, just so you can be told exactly how you should be interacting with this form. Why would, why would you need to do that? I think if you think about people using screen readers interact with web pages every day, often very bad web pages, and manage to do a, a huge amount with the little that they're given. And they don't need additional instructions. Also, if you're going to provide additional instructions for someone on how to use a form, is your form good enough in the first place? Yeah, is your right. form simple enough in the first place? If you make improvements that make that form itself better for people using a screen reader and everybody else, then everybody wins. This episode of Presentable is sponsored by Timing, the automatic time tracking app for the Mac. Time tracking sounds boring, right? You have to start and stop timers and it interrupts your workflow and you often forget to do it. Why should you have to do all that work? Timing automatically tracks how much time you spend on each app, document, and website. That means you never have to worry about stopping or starting a timer again. And because timing collects more data than a regular time tracker, its use extends far beyond billable hours. It shows you exactly when you were using which app or website, when you slacked off, and how productive you've been, so you know how to improve your productivity. But your work doesn't happen just on your Mac. That's why timing automatically makes suggestions for filling in gaps in your timeline and can ask what you did offline every time you return to your Mac. That way, you'll never forget to enter a meeting again. I've been using timing myself for the past few weeks, and it's been so interesting. I put myself on a sort of media diet this summer, having been, frankly, a bit overwhelmed by all the news and social media in my life. So instead, I've been focused on reading books, and timing has let me track my success. I can happily report that my Kindle app has ranked much higher in my usage stats than Twitter for the first time in a long time. So download the 14-day free trial today by heading to timingapp.com presentable, and you'll save 10% when you purchase. Thanks so much to Timing for supporting Presentable and all of Relay FM. So screen readers, let's, let's talk about that for just a minute because I'm sure most people have no idea what that experience might be like, but I saw a video recently, I think it was off Reddit, and I will try to find a link to it, put it in the show notes, of somebody using a screen reader and, and the voice coming over it at something like 200 words per minute, where like an average is something like 40. It was absolutely remarkable to see that happening. Uh, but what is that technology like these days? Like I remember, I think it was what was it? It was called Jaws or something. Is that was a yeah? Uh, a... So, so Jaws was one of the early screen readers that was on Windows, and it was it's called uh, 
job access is the beginning of the acronym. Um, and it, so it's a kind of a very old school screen reader, still exists, but it's very, very expensive. I'm talking over a thousand dollars. Wait, is it software? Just a piece of software? It is software, a piece of software. Um, and what it does is it will interpret the text and the interactive elements on the screen and read it back to the, the person using the device uh-huh. um, in spoken form. And it can you can adjust the settings so that it reads particular things, it gives priority to particular things. You can use it with uh, keyboard navigation or mouse navigation because, of course, not everybody who wants to have a screen read to them is necessarily someone with a visual impairment. Um, the example that I use in my book is my brother. And my brother has cerebral palsy, which is um, which affects his brain. Um, even though um, it affects his brain, what the most noticeable effect of it is that it affects his motor skills. So he finds walking difficult, which isn't particularly relevant to his use of the web. Mm-hmm. But his fine motor control um, is not particularly accurate. He can use a mouse, he can use a keyboard, but he can be a little bit slow and uh, can find it hard to move a mouse very accurately. Hmm. And sometimes uh, he will find it easier to have a screen reader read some of the text on the page because a lot of people with cerebral palsy also have learning difficulties and his has manifested itself in severe dyslexia. So reading is very is hard work, it's not much fun for him and sometimes he'll just have a day where he'd rather have the page read to him. And so while he is not vision impaired at all, he can just highlight the the body of text on the page and say, read that to me as well. And so people use screen readers with different forms of input as well. And what was really revolutionary was actually when the iPhone came out and brought with it in one of the very early versions, voiceover. Right, right. And this was the first time that a screen reader was integrated into the device itself, into the operating system itself. And Apple soon followed doing it on the Mac as well. And nowadays, Windows has its own as well called Narrator. Um, And there are also open source um, screen readers uh, such as NVDU and things like that that are free. Mm. Because even though it's great that VoiceOver comes free with your device and integrated into it but it it's an expensive device an apple device to begin with right right and and so what voiceover did was enable people to interact with a touch screen device and hear everything using the speakers from it so the speakers will read everything to you and it's actually really easy if you've got an iphone to how quickly test sort of your apps and your sites and things like that by just switching voiceover on and it's in the general settings under accessibility uh, you have to take note of the uh, controls to use on your device afterwards because they're slightly different um from the usual touch interactions that you need and mm-hmm. um, things like tapping a few i think it's tap once to hear and tap twice to interact interesting um, but then you can actually you can start seeing how this works, or start listening to how this works more accurately. So is this is VoiceOver something that is like an API for developers to use, or is it if a developer makes an app and does essentially no extra work, will VoiceOver still be an effective way for somebody to interact with that app? If someone makes an app and they make sure that they label their um, the different items inside the project appropriately. So in a similar way in which if you use the correct 
um, HTML elements for a heading, a link, a paragraph, then then a screen reader like VoiceOver could pick up on it. And the same goes for um, app development. If you're using the native components that already exist, then they will largely have accessibility built into them. And if you're doing Apple development, they have a huge amount of resources for uh, testing and debugging all of the accessibility stuff as well. Apple has really invested in that and to the degree that like one of the recent keynotes opened with a video all about people with various abilities using their products. Like that was how they started the keynote presentation, wasn't it? Yeah, it's it's so cool that they are helping their, the people building on their platform understand why it's important as well. It's not just a kind of showing off in that we're doing the right thing, but by doing that, they're also encouraging others to think about it too. Yeah, and I think the uh, the video itself, uh, the reveal at the end was it was made by a person who could not, uh, had no use of their arms and was doing everything sort of with a mouth control device or something. And, and that's the thing, if you talk to people on Twitter, you'll probably find that a huge amount of the designers, developers, people with other disciplines that you're interacting with online, they may well have an impairment of some kind that you have no idea about because we so often we interact with each other um, over text on a screen rather than face to face. What was your motivation? You talk, you, was it your watching your brother uh, with the difficulties that he has with interacting with, with content or what was your approach to kind of focusing on accessibility? The funny thing is I didn't really associate my brother's disability with my how much I cared about accessibility until I started writing the book because obviously to me my brother's three years younger than me and so I grew up with him dealing with his life experiences Mm. as normal that's sometimes he had trouble with some things in the same way that some of me and my sisters had trouble with different things and I didn't really think about it in that way What I was very lucky in doing is when I started learning how to design for the web and do front-end development, which was about 15 years ago, I was learning from books by people who had a focus on web standards and who actually explained a lot of the accessibility implications of it. I don't know why at the time that might have been something that people were talking about, but I just sort of, once I got it in my head that, oh, if I... If I decide to mark up my navigation as a list uh, rather than just a bunch of links, it might make it easier for somebody to use. And just from learning things like that, it sort of got in my head and I'd always thought about it ever since. So talk about that a little bit. Like you're, when you're sitting down with a client uh, and, and, and working through what a project is going to be, is this something you need to, I don't know, upsell? Or is it, I mean, do you... Do you make it very explicit or do you just say you're going to get all of this with the work that we do? So back when I was doing uh, freelance client services, well, I would I would consider it as part of the work that I do. I My ideal is that people would start considering accessibility in the same way that they do performance. You're not going to try to upsell performance to a client. You're not going to go... Uh, oh, you're, you'll only have a site that is that is usably fast um, because you're going to pay me this extra amount of money. Um, you wouldn't want to put off the people using your site in that way, and the same should really go for accessibility. Mm. And so I would never uh, include that as an optional extra, but I think sometimes 
clients will need a little bit of education as to why it's important because it does permeate through the entirety of everything we build when we're making our products. It's everything from the copy that we're writing. We can make that more accessible. We can make it easy to understand for people who have learning disabilities or we could make it easier um, for people who have a different native language from us, a different native language from our website. If we write things in a plain way, it makes it easy for a translation plugin to actually make sense of text yep. rather than sort of using strange sports metaphors and things like that in our text that suddenly makes it impossible to understand when it's translated. <laughs> and, you mean using idioms is, and stuff, hitting it out oh, of the park? Yeah, and, uh... yeah I, I, as a British person, I find the baseball metaphors very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> And and but it's funny because even that's something that you get from American to British. Like they're both speaking English, but there are differences there that actually make what we're doing less accessible to each other. Yeah, yeah. And yep. so I I will try to minimise my Britishisms when I'm writing, and you to try to sort of start off that process of yeah. thinking, always yeah. trying to think. How do I make this more accessible? How is someone going to trip up when they come to this? So that's interesting. A way of achieving accessibility by really like not calling it out in the in the process, right? Like making it a fundamental value, but not a line item in a in a proposal. Because yeah, you, exactly yeah. that. Yeah, I mean specifically when you come to things like uh, researching and testing, you'll want to. When you you'll look out for particular people when you're researching and testing, hmm. and you should always try to include people that, I mean, in the same way that you would try to include people from diverse backgrounds, you would want to include people that have uh, different accessibility needs as well, because that way you can find you can locate some of the problems much quicker than you would otherwise. So recruiting for discovery research and usability, I have always found very, very difficult and generally try to outsource all of that, the scheduling and just finding people hard. Now to add another factor that you want to have some sense of diversity of abilities, that seems, I mean, it just seems really, really difficult. Yeah, but I think, well, the approach is either you can try to work it out up front, you can try and come across these problems up front, or you end up finding them far later down the line. Yeah, when well, of course. Yeah. Much harder to fix. Of course, it's. I mean, it's easier said than done. Yeah. And and one of the things that could trip you up also is that um, one person is not necessarily representative of everybody sure. with a particular disability or everybody with disabilities, and so we have to be careful not to get caught up on that as well. I'd say. Anne Gibson wrote a really great article on a list of parts uh, where she had this testing matrix. And um, this was for when you're testing within your team. And it's about testing combinations of inputs and outputs on a device. So um, if you're looking at a website, you might be testing it with um, a standard keyboard. You might be testing it with a switch control. You might be testing it with um, a touch screen. Um, a non-touch screen, a really massive screen, a really tiny screen, and you have all of these different things, and your matrix, you make it so that you test as many applicable combinations of output and input in order to try to cover 
a lot of those issues. And I think that's a really clever way of looking at it too. I'll go look that up and put a link in the show notes. That sounds really good. It, uh, a whole matrix of inputs and outputs. I like that. That's a great metaphor for, for all of that stuff. And, and it stops us going, oh, but surely, uh, surely people using a screen reader won't be using a mouse. But that's not necessarily the case. Right. And, so, and it's not a difficult thing to test. I have no experience with the kind of with the professional recruitment side here, but when you're trying to, um, if you're trying to do it from a kind of a homegrown do-it-yourself mm. way of uh, doing it, I think that if you widen the group of people that you're working with, even if it's just the kinds of people that you're asking advice from and things like that when you're working yeah. your community around you even if it's online you can end up getting to know people that do have different experiences of the web and use it in a different way and then you might know oh well this person my friend they use a screen reader so maybe i'll ask them if they have the time because of course they're not obliged to do anything for you for nothing um <laughs> whether they could give their opinion on how it might work for them or how it might not work for them. And being able to do that, just having people that you can ask or that they might know um, someone else who has a similar setup or something like that as well. I think when we're talking about recruitment and looking for specific, we're not looking for specific types of people. We are looking for specific ways that people interact with a device. So we're looking for people who use a particular yeah input and a particular output i like that yeah good because that's the important part and that's the part that's going to have an effect of course the person behind it is the important part but what they're actually how they're actually using it is the part that's key to what you're doing yeah yeah that's good that's good so you talk about an approach here that um follows sort of four categories of accessibility, uh, visual, auditory, motor, and cognitive. You want to talk about those a little bit and just sort of what we should keep in mind as we, as we think through that? Yeah, so kind of like some of the examples I gave earlier, um, visual, when you're looking at trying to make something more accessible for people with visual impairments, you're essentially trying to look at how do I make my page easy to see? How do I make my screen easy to see? How do I make my the interactions that I've put there easy to see? Um, and so this could be um, if someone can't see it, what do you provide as an alternative to that? It could be things like how do I make the colors, my branding, is the colors of my branding accessible to people with a particular type of color blindness? Um, if you've kind of got a Christmas site as a good example because red and green are sort of colors that people use often for Christmas. Um, red and green um, laid on top of each other are actually very difficult to read for people with the most common form of color blindness. Which is a huge percentage, and, right? Especially yeah, in men. It's, um, yeah, particularly in Caucasian men, yeah. it's, it's very high. And um, for things like uh, audit with auditory accessibility, we're maybe looking at providing alternatives to sound, not relying on sound um, as an indicator for things. Um, perhaps doing subtitles or captioning if you have videos um, or a, a text equivalent um, of some way. Uh, and the same goes for the visual, uh, often providing uh, text equivalent to things like images um, I think right. when you were speaking to Josh, um, when you were talking about the um, AI stuff, yeah. that you mentioned that um, 
you could add, like a lot of APIs are coming up now that can describe images and they might not be great, but in terms of accessibility, that could be very useful. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Filling in alt tags, letting the computer do it now by looking at the yeah. image. Yeah. I, I mean, that's not an excuse for us to be lazy, <laughs> but it's, but it's a uh, step for us to get better. Yeah, for yeah, sure. It really is. I mean, one of the exercises that I'd really recommend is turn on descriptions on images on Twitter. Um, because it's a setting you can switch on mm. in your Twitter settings where you describe all of the images that you post to Twitter in order to make them more accessible for people. Didn't and that, that. makes a huge difference. Yeah. Huh. And well, it's, a, it's kind of a hidden setting, but that adds alt because you don't get alt text on Twitter otherwise. Um, and I posted a stupid photo once upon a time that went very viral um and it was just a stupid uh, as they were referring to it, a, a dad joke and i didn't add alt text to the image and so to someone who was trying to um who couldn't see the text they would um they would just see my uh stupid smells like dot 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 and miss out on the bag of teen spinach <laughs> that i had in the photo really stupid pun um and just a silly thing I posted. And then I had a friend of mine send me a message on Twitter saying, Laura, can you tell me what was in the image? Because I don't get the joke. Ah. And then I suddenly realized, oh, and that joke's got real, has had loads of retweets. Like this is the mo my most popular tweet by a long, long way. And there's a whole load of people who are missing out on the joke just because I could have added a little bit more text and I didn't. So I think that things like alternative text really starts you thinking in that mindset yeah. of how to be how to design with more consideration. Yeah. And when we come to uh, designing for cognitive impairments, I mean, it's a kind of a very broad uh, sort of vague term because I've boxed a lot of things into that. But it could be things like um, learning difficulties, learning disabilities like dyslexia. Um, along to things like people who have seizures um, who are often triggered by quick flashes, mm. um, which, I mean, given how trendy animations are becoming, we have to be very careful that we're not making anything that has rapid flashing in it and could trigger a seizure because that would be awful. And things like people who are motion sensitive as well, who can get nauseous if you've got sort of your parallax scrolling going on. And things like this. Um, I, mean, I know Apple's got a setting to reduce motion on the device, and they now have a media query for that as well. But that's not universally implemented. So we don't necessarily know if the thing that we've designed that looks really cool and has sort of a beautiful motion in it might end up making someone feel really unwell. And so we have to be more considerate of that as well. And then the, the motor control is... One of the simplest things you can think about is hit areas. Yeah. Um, do you have to t try to click on a link? Do you have to click the text itself? Or do you make the space around that link clickable so that someone doesn't have to focus on clicking on it with such accuracy? And get all of these things would be make a site usable to everybody. It, it would it would just improve that general usability. Besides all of the sort of design level things that you were just talking about, are there specifics when like putting together a web page that we should be using, like s specific standards to go have a look at that might be in addition to just standard well-designed uh, semantic tags? Yeah, there's the accessibility guidelines, um, the web standards, 
they have a kind of the way that they now approach it is they have some very broad guidelines and then if you want to be specific to they have um double a and triple a standards so triple a is like really really strict and double a is not quite so strict and if you adhere to those particular standards they have more kind of checkboxy things that you can look at um particular example is the contrast between your background um color and your foreground text color yeah is the contrast between those two a specific value i mean i'm not sure how much use that value is but it will give you a good vague idea of um, whether you're making something horribly unreadable because you've used light gray text on a white background um, and they have other guidelines like that but they are very strict and in some se in public sectors um, often they will have those guidelines as a legal requirement uh, that's very common on uh, public sector sites um, in many different countries so yeah so websites by the government that are supported by taxpayer dollars should be usable by all the taxpayers i guess would be the exactly yeah, that yeah, yeah especially as nowadays so many so many information services are only available via those websites that's right that's right interesting so having it web accessibility guidelines encoded into law yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, there is other there's other legal sides as well to it it doesn't necessarily even have to be public sector websites there are a lot of places have been sued by different groups for discrimination because they didn't make their website accessible particularly to um uh, groups of blind people um, who have sued big companies before saying you're discriminating because you're not offering your services to us because we can't access your website. Interesting. I hadn't followed that um, very closely in recent years uh, and they've been successful. Yes, although very often these deals are settled out of court. Sure. Um, <laughs> because, of course, what company wants that kind of publicity? Yeah. Um, but often that is alongside the proviso that they do actually make their website accessible. So it has a net benefit. It's not about people aren't suing to make money. They're suing to make these to make corporations change. actually think about what they're doing. Yeah. And Target was one of the biggest companies that was sued for this. Ah. And they had to both pay money and make their site accessible as well. Wow. Um, it was quite a long time ago now. <laughs> one of the things I saw you writing about is this idea of accessibility as social justice. And I think that kind of gets to it, yeah? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a big part of the direction I think a lot of people are moving in technology is the realization that when we are building products that affect people's lives and make up people's lives, we must make them inclusive for everybody. Uh, otherwise, you're, it's not just that you are ignoring people, you are actively shutting them out. Well, I think that's a really good note to end on. Accessibility for Everyone, your new book, uh, it's out now? It is available for pre-order now, and it is out on the 26th of September. Fantastic. Uh, I will put a link to the page. It's from A Book Apart. Um, a lot of good friends over there. They're still doing amazing work. I'm just looking at your book now, number 23. They have uh, yeah. quite a library. That's amazing. So where else can we find out about you? You've got a website? Yeah, my website is lauracalbag.com, and you can find me anywhere at Laura Calbag because my name is fairly unusual. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I work for Indie, and there's just two of us, and our website is ind.ie. Great. We'll send people there as well. Laura, thanks so much for being on the show. Great. Thank you for having me. 
And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.